Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vish Want and Partha. Welcome to this week's College Football Sprint. We are here with Coach Zach Smith. What's up, dude? We are so good to so glad to see you. How was your holiday? It was great, man. It was awesome. Four kids. It's 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 always <laughs> uh, exciting. I mean, we got a freaking puppy, all kinds of stuff. I see you gifted somebody a car, man. You did it big. You know what? That, that's what that's a self serving Santa gift because <laughs> I, four, four kids they don't fit in a five seater anymore. You got to get a bigger car. Yeah, Makes man. Sense. What kind did you end up with? Uh, GMC Acadia Denali. Oh, Ooh. nice. Nice. Yeah, that's good. dude. That's a good. That's like one of those cars that I grew up seeing all the time, and I like yeah. those big SUVs from GMC. Yeah, it, it, you know what is? It's nice enough. It's not like the high mm-hmm. high end, but it's it's perfect. It's really nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's dope. Well, you know what they say: the taller your car, the uh, cooler you are. <laughs> that's why I got a truck and an SUV now. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, V. How about you, man? It was good, man. It was good. Yeah, same thing on my end, just chilled out with the fam. So, you know, what was interesting is both my parents taught at Ohio State growing up, right? So, um, you know, the conversation, as you may expect, turns Ohio State football 90% of the time when I'm with my family. So we were talking about it, and we got into this conversation about this team versus other teams we've had and, you know, the context. And, um, you know, that I'm really excited about this kind of look forward that we're about to do this week into college football playoff, you know, the bowl games that have been going on. Um, you know, let's start with the the good old Bucks and Clemson. And, um, you know, Zach, what should we be thinking about looking for um, any news that's happened kind of in the last couple of weeks? And uh, I guess on top of that, would love to kind of get some color from you as to what, what the process looked like under Urban Meyer to get prepped for, say, a playoff or for for a big game versus maybe what it might be today with Ryan Day? Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, Ryan has a very different, I guess, uh, personality and and approach from Urban, but but not in the sense of preparation. I mean, preparation still is very high. I think Ryan does a better job of demanding, uh, you know, alone, you know, on your own prep. Where, where Urban, he wanted that. It was kind of on the position coaches to, to handle it, but um, and it went on like crazy. But I think Ryan has a, has a much more systematic and organized way of doing that. And uh, it's why they look so prepared every game. I mean, you know, even when they don't play well, it's not because of lack of preparation. And bowl prep is very different. Uh, this is obviously the most unique bowl prep because it's only whatever, two weeks, where normally it's, it's at least a month-ish. Right. So – you really lose that that fun time of bowl prep. Like in bowl prep, if you have four weeks, the first two weeks are really, you know, they're fun bowl practices. They're you're, you're you have to do certain things to keep your timing in the pass game, keep your fundamentals and ball security, tackling, blocking those things. But outside of that, there's a lot of fun stuff that goes on. I mean, guys will go out and play corner for a day. You know, you'll have coaches versus players challenges, like something to 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 change up the routine and make it a little more fun because it's not as serious. You're just trying to stay sharp before you get into actual game prep. And that, that is the two weeks before the game. Well, this year, because mm-hmm. of COVID, that's all they had was the two weeks before the game. So they went straight into prep. And so it's kind of a bummer because they they lost out on that fun opportunity and that that kind of 
lull where they could get their bodies right and kind of rest. Man, that's crazy. One of the questions that I had for you, I was thinking about this the other day, is that for about three weeks, we were 21 to 22 players short. How did that impact practice and and preparation for games? Um, You know, it's uh, I don't think it impacted it a ton outside of the impact of not having those contributors. Right. I mean, in practice, they have bodies. I mean, it it may not be pretty, but they probably did a lot uh, more scout work than than normal just because you don't want your third string guard in there against Haskell Garrett. And it's like it just becomes a nightmare. You can't do anything on offense. So I'm sure they did a lot more scouts, a lot more ones on twos or ones on threes. And, um, you know, I, I think ultimately it didn't really affect preparation. I think what you did see was all of a sudden you're playing with, you know, without three linemen or without, you know, without 20 some players and 10 of them are contributors. So I think that's a factor. And it'll be nice to get all, if not all or close to all of those kids back and healthy, barring some some other outbreak. But um, it, it definitely I think it definitely impacted the the performance on Saturdays, but not necessarily game week prep, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And as far as as far as this game is concerned, I mean, this is a revenge game, right? In a lot of ways for Ohio State, not just for what happened last year, but we've had trouble with Clemson multiple years now, and I and I think um, Ohio State really needs to get a win I, under Jim Trussell. There was this big thing about Jim Trussell is a great coach, but he can't beat the SEC. And it seems like Clemson is that dragon that we've had. We have to slay now with the Urban Era and now Ryan Day. What what happens here if if we're able to conquer this dragon? What does it do for the program? I mean, it it, it gets the Dabo monkey off our back, right? To start, um, it I think it, it'll be a, a big win. Obviously, uh, making the national championship and beating Clemson to kind of avenge last year's loss will be a, a moral victory, if nothing else. It's not. I don't think it'll be overly impactful. It's not like beating Bama the first time. You know, this is not the first time Ohio State is on the big stage, and if they win, it won't be the first big win in the playoffs. Like that. That is a mountain to overcome. That is something Notre Dame's trying to do, frankly. And yeah. uh, so I think that it'll be big just to say you know, we're not winless against Clemson in the history of Ohio state football. That'll be nice. It'll be yeah. to not have that hanging over our head, but ultimately I think it's just, it'll just be a big win. No different than beating anyone in a championship game or a playoff game. Yeah. Yeah. And then, as far as Dabo's uh, commentary, trying to get a rise out of us, I'm not sure what exactly his motivation is, but is it just overconfidence? Because why would you kind of, try to get a rise out of an op- opponent that's already motivated to kind of rank them 11th and keep coming out in the media and saying things like this. It doesn't seem like that's a wise strategy that a lot of coaches specifically, you hear players do this, but you don't necessarily hear coaches doing stuff like this. Yeah, uh, I think I honestly, uh, and, and I think it was less about riling up Ohio state and more about him trying to state a case for what, who he believes is the best player in college football. I mean, he thinks Trevor Lawrence is the, the best player in college football. And a lot of these things he's throwing out about, well, nine, you should at least play nine games and things like that. It's because Trevor Lawrence played nine games. You know, he's trying to state a case for Trevor Lawrence should be in the conversation with Mac Jones and Devontae Smith and uh, in the Heisman conversation or the Walter Camp conversation. I think he's really politicking for those guys. And, And I don't think he's wrong with what he said. You know, 
you should have to play 9, 10, 11 games to make the playoffs. Now, that doesn't mean Ohio State wasn't one of the best four teams. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be in. But he's not wrong. It's, like, it's unfair that they got, they got in with six games. It really is. Now, they should be in. Like, I don't disagree with them getting in. But it, you're looking at Texas A&M, who played 11 games, and you're like, well, that's not really fair, to be honest with you. Well, when you, go ahead. Yeah, when you look at, at you know, even the, the statement about Trevor Lawrence, right, is that fair this year? Because, I mean, last year he looked like one of the best players in college football. Well, I mean, you just look at Trevor Lawrence. You look at the offense, and if you want to get in the game breakdown, I mean, the offense is without the weapons that Trevor Lawrence had last year. I mean, they don't have T. Higgins. They don't have Justin Ross. You look at Mac Jones, who had – Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle for a couple games, Mechie, like Najee Harris in the run game. They had all those things. Right. And so I don't think Trevor Lawrence is playing any worse. I think he's playing just as well as last year, uh, if not maybe even a little better. He just doesn't have the the freak show on the perimeter to make everything look so much better. I mean, he's right. made, he made some throws on Saturday that, honestly, I was jaw-dropped. Like, wow, that is a big boy NFL throw right there. Yeah, you know the hypocrisy, though, of what Dabo is doing is that Trevor Lawrence missed three games um, due to COVID himself. So he's only working with the six-game schedule himself. So it doesn't really even make sense what he's saying. It's just he's making a case um, just because that's what Dabo does, I think, because he wants to make a case for his guys. But also, you do have to take into consideration, I do think that, yeah, you're right, Ohio State didn't play nine games. But it wasn't Ohio State's fault that they didn't. And if you look at the games that were missed, Michigan and Maryland, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Ohio State would have blown both of those teams out. Now, and despite that also, Ohio State continued to play games with 21 to 22 players out throughout the season. So I do think also, you know, throughout the season, the committees, the AP, the um, the coaches, and, you know, the BCS polls all had Ohio State ranked as one of the top four teams throughout the season. You know, they never put Texas A&M over them. And I think Texas A&M's case is weak because, yes, they played a SEC schedule, but they're playing three and seven Tennessee and two win Vanderbilt. They're not playing outside of Florida and Alabama. They didn't play any ranked opponents, you know. Um, so I do, I do hear what people are saying, but Ohio State came into the season. And if you look at the team, they're – there are three programs in this country that have the best talent. They produce the NFL players. It's Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama. They should all be in in the playoff if they don't have a loss. That's just how I feel about it. Yeah, I mean, th I think that's why Ohio State got in. They're one yeah. of the best four teams. It's not fair. They shouldn't have gotten in yeah. just based on the schedule. Big Ten's fault, Ohio State's fault. It doesn't matter. You play six yeah. games, you shouldn't get in. They got in because it was very clear they were one of the best four teams. It wasn't yeah. up for debate who was the better teams. Yeah. So I, I think yeah. that the reality is if Texas A&M played better or Ohio State, you know, maybe played another game and didn't look good against a Michigan or whoever, I think you'd really have an argument to not put Ohio State in, but it was just clear cut. They're just that much yeah. better than Texas A&M. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we felt that way with their offense right off the bat too. It's just – it's an incredible team. So how do you feel, Zach, going into the game? What are some things that Ohio State needs to be thinking about um, and on the Clemson side as well? Uh, I, I, I honestly don't feel good about the game. I mean, I wish I could say <laughs> otherwise, but I, I just don't. I mean, I think that 
it's it's too perfectly matched up right now. Like Clemson is is one of the top teams in the country at pressuring the quarterback, and and the offensive line at Ohio State has struggled. And it's not it's not like last year with Chase Young. Clemson doesn't have freaky pass rushers. They're very similar to Ohio State. They have above average pass rushers. They're the the, the top two sack getters have four sacks on the year. So it's not like they have some dominant guy we got to yeah. worry about. It's Brent Venables we have to worry about. His yeah. scheme creates pressure. Where you watch Ohio State's defense, our scheme does not create pressure. We don't create pressure for anyone. And if we, our most dominant pass rushers are our two interior D linemen, which is a great asset. But where are the where is the edge pressure? I mean, you're real athletes, like freaky athletes that the twitched up guys that can get get to the quarterback. You just yeah. haven't seen it from Ohio State. So I, I'm worried about the interior O line at Ohio State blocking. Not any player specifically, just the schemes that Venables is going to mm-hmm. throw at them. And then I, I worry about about our offense if 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 we're going to stay with the two trick pony or if we're going to actually employ some NFL tight ends or if Trey Sermon is actually going to get some touches in the pass game and if he's going to be the the workhorse in the backfield because we saw on Saturday last Saturday that it works that is the formula in the backfield. Yeah, I, I think it's you said it with Venables. It's like you know that he's going to look at all the film and he's going to have a game plan that's going to shut down what we want to do what we've wanted to do up until this point. So it's going to be really critical for Ryan to make some wrinkles and, and, and adjust here. The other concern that I have is uh, Etienne out of the backfield, right? Our linebackers and coverage are going to really need to step up in this game. I don't know what, what you see from that in our secondary. Do you think, you know, it seems like the receivers are down a little bit this year, but I'm really concerned about, our linebacker play. Obviously, I don't know if Justin Hilliard is going to get the start. He obviously deserves it because he's looked like the best linebacker in coverage up until this point. But you know, how do we how do we stop uh, Etienne out of the backfield? Yeah, I think it's the the reality is this, and, and I, I would imagine that after studying all the film on both sides of the ball, Ohio State takes a couple pages out of Clemson's playbook to employ Trey Sermon a little bit in the throw game because. Travis Etienne is getting, he's got been targeted 53 times in the past game. 33 of them, 33 of them are on screens. So well over half, 60%, over 60% are screens. So that's one, how we could use Trey Sermon a little bit to help the O-line out and to take the load off of Olave and Wilson, who we throw to every play. But also we have, Larry Johnson's the best in the country. Our D-line is the best in the country at sniffing out screens and retracing. And so it's really going to be on them. I mean, the linebackers got to defeat blocks to try to, you know, tackle tackle Travis in, in the screen game. But this is where Larry Johnson's group's going to have to show up and sniff out screens, not let that happen, and still be effective in the pass rush. I mean, shit, to be honest, they're not getting home anyways. You might as well just worry about the screens. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Wow. You know, I think I, as a fan, I'm nervous as hell about the game, but – at the same time, I can't shake all of the times I've seen Justin Fields do things that are unbelievable. And so I'm I'm just hoping we can string together enough good plays and not have any unnecessary turnovers. And I think we could we could probably, you know, eke it out here. I mean, there's no there's no reason to hold back, right? With Justin Fields. It's like, here's what makes him such a threat is if you have the receivers down, what are you gonna stop? You have the receivers. If 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 we do all the things Zach's just talked about, if we involve Trey Sermon, we get our receivers and our tight ends involved. Justin Fields, if he runs the ball, he should have a field day. Yeah, literally a Fields day 
running the hey, ball. You that's know? a good one. Field day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think that that's a huge part that Venables is definitely intimidating. But pick your poison. If we really establish a run game and the screen game, and then we also get the ball to our receivers and skill position, I don't see how you're going to stop Justin Fields from from racking up a hundred plus yards rushing. There's no reason. And you look at how the game was won last year. Trevor Lawrence's feet won the game last year. And yeah. so what, there's no reason. Justin Fields is a better athlete. He's faster. There's no reason he can't do something similar in this game. And I think it's really going to be about how does Ohio State pressure Trevor Lawrence without letting him escape and hurt Ohio State's defense with, with his feet. Because yeah. you saw it, albeit against bad teams this year, but quarterback scrambles and runs hurt this defense in the Big Ten play. It did. And, Tra and Trevor Lawrence, has his production drops off half when he is pressured and forced to throw. So it's going to be about how they can get pressure on him but still keep him in the pocket. Make him beat Ohio State under duress because the, the, the reality is their skill set on the outside is not good enough to get open that fast. Eventually, probably. Everyone else has. But if it's quick, I think that's the formula that, that Greg Madison and Kerry Combs need to be uh, going with is simulated pressures, blitzes, putting some different personnel packages on the field to get better pass rushers to get home, but also spying Trevor Lawrence, keeping making sure he can't just scamper for 20 yards on, on, on through a rush, an open rush lane. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so just to bump this forward, what do you think, you know, we'll see, how, we'll have to see about how we really contain on the defensive side. Do you think that what we can do on the offensive side is enough to just simply outscore? Well, I think, you know, Clemson has a longstanding history in huge games of not covering the over-under. That's kind of that's their game plan. Venables defense takes over the offense plays to win and they win the game. So I think Ohio State needs to hit the over to win. I think yeah. Ohio State needs to score points. This yeah. needs to be a high scoring game for Ohio State to win. If it's not, I don't think they win. Yeah. I mean, last year, kind of same thing, right? It wasn't as high scoring as it could have been. Yeah. Hit the under. It hit the under. Yeah. Let's 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 give our score predictions. Phew. Started with me or last. I'm going last. <laughs> <laughs> so Zach, you got to start. Oh, uh, I I think Clemson wins the game, uh, 31-21. Well, I have a personal principle that regardless of accuracy, I always pick my team to win. So um, <laughs> I'm picking Ohio State, and uh, I think it will be 41-38 in overtime. Ooh. Well. I actually am in on Ohio State this year because of I really think what happened last year with Olave and Fields, specifically Olave. I don't think he's gonna he's gonna let this defense stop him any way, shape, or form. And I think that we're gonna get real revenge here and it's gonna we're gonna win handily. I do think that. I don't think that Clemson is as good of a team this year as they were last year. Obviously, we're not as good on the defensive side of the ball and our corners aren't as good, but their receivers also aren't as good. And I think we can contain Trevor Lawrence. Hopefully we look at that film and adjust. And I think we can win 41, 28. That's fair. This feels a lot like, you know, it's Thanksgiving day and there's two turkeys in the pen and, and it's just, you're trying not to be the one that gets caught first because the other yeah. one's getting slaughtered anyways. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right, I don't want to die today. Let me die another day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so talking about dying another day, Alabama Notre Dame. 
do we to what depth do we even need to talk about this game because we know the outcome um uh, i mean you think you do right and, and, and whatever <laughs> you think you do is when it's not i think the the craziest stat i saw and this is kind of not to end the clemson ohio state matchup but clemson's the only team in the college football playoff without an all-american on the defensive side of the ball i think that's wow. huge mm-hmm. you know, they're the only team out of the four that doesn't have a defensive all-american on any three teams so i think that's big but then you look at alabama five first-team All-Americans just crazy. It's absurd. And you you really look at it, it's like, all right, you're starting an NFL franchise. What do you need? All right, we need a quarterback, first-team All-American. You need a left tackle, first-team All-American. You need a star receiver, first-team All-American. You need a running back, first-team All-American. I need a lockdown corner, first-team All-American. It's like, this is like the most ridiculously compiled NFL team I've ever seen. Yep. Yeah. It reminds me. It reminds me a little bit, actually, of of that Miami team we beat. Oh, yeah. You know, in terms of just a lot of names on that team. I think these guys that you see on Alabama when you get when they get to the next level are going to be. There's going to be a few a few Hall of Famers. You know, ridiculous, ridiculous. Um, they don't have Larry Coker coaching them. That's the only difference. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you, you look at. I, I always look at talent wins games, right? I know coaching matters, development matters, but it, ultimately, talent wins games. And right now, of all three teams, all American teams, Notre uh, Bama has eight players on the three teams. Notre Dame has four. Ohio State has three. Clemson has two. That's indicative of the top end talent on these teams. And it really is kind of is, is indicative that Notre Dame might be better than people think. They might, I don't think they have a chance, but they might, they might play a little bit better than people would imagine they will. Well, I mean, they have talent. They have NFL level talent. You know, you can say what you want to say about Brian Kelly, whether you like him or not, but he's been able to bring or up the level of talent that comes to Notre Dame than than they had in previous regimes. And they've got a few NFL guys there. So I mean. What do you think they actually need to do to compete and win this game? Or keep they, need close to, to have it? they need to send COVID to Tuscaloosa so fast. <laughs> I, I, I just don't know how they stop this offense. I really don't. I yeah. mean, they, Notre Dame is a very physical defense. They're very fundamentally sound. Their scheme is excellent. But this offense is something like no one's seen. In, yeah. I mean, you talk about LSU's offense last year. It's very similar. Like, how do you stop them? I have no yeah. idea. You don't. Is the reality they you have pressure? You can't you can't stop the run. They have you stop one receiver. They've got two other All Americans. Yeah. It's 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 pretty crazy. I think Ole Miss showed the formula to to play them competitively, and that's you have to score with them. And Ole Miss had to do it differently because they weren't as talented. I mean, they have a first team All American receiver and Elijah Moore, but they they went up tempo. They went no huddle. They tried to wear Bama out because they knew they had to score to be in the game. That's what Notre Dame has to do. The problem is that's not what they're conducive to do. They don't have great skill on the perimeter. They have a solid run game and a great offensive line and a kind of a gamer quarterback in Ian Book. So I. I just don't think the matchup is 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 great for Notre Dame. I no, mean, they're they're no. a really good team, but it's going to be a tough one. You think yeah. it's going to be it's going to be a repeat of the Manti Teo year for them? As embarrassing of a loss, it definitely could be. Um, I don't yeah. think it will be because they're they're so fundamentally sound and they have such a good offensive line that I think they'll at least shorten the game. And and if it is a blowout fashion game, I think it'll be less embarrassing just because of their style of play and their strengths. Yeah. I just hope for they keep it competitive for the sake of that program. Yeah. Um, that's that's what I'm looking at. Because if they get embarrassed again, it's going to be like, you can't keep putting these guys in there no matter what their record says. 
No, especially because of what happened in the ACC championship game. I mean, they, yeah. they can point to the Clemson win all they want, but then if they get blown out two games in a row, that narrative will just explode about the COVID. Trevor Lawrence didn't play. James Stalski yeah. didn't play. Yeah. I mean, all those things that, that, in my opinion, didn't impact the game a ton are going to be over-exemplified and just used against them. You know what's funny about these narratives, too? I feel like I feel like regardless of who you are, player, coach, you know, you're not invincible to these narratives. You could be a pro, you could be a college player. Yep. These are kids we're talking about. When they hear this over and over outside, it gets in their heads. They get on the field and they might be thinking or just subconsciously thinking, well, you know, maybe it was a fluke the last time we win. Can we actually pull this off? That's when you've already lost. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no doubt. So score predictions for that game. Ooh, boy. Um, <laughs> I think uh, uh, 35-14 Bama. I'm going to say 28-14 <laughs> Bama. I'm going to say 51-21 Bama. Mm. V, if the scores are as high as, as your predictions, man, it's going to be an awesome, awesome January 1st. Well, I just don't – I don't see how Notre Dame is going to stop this offense. They are a good, fundamentally sound defense – but I don't see speed. I don't see like the things that you need to do to be able to actually contain these guys. It's just a credit to Alabama. No disrespect to Notre Dame at all. They in any other year, I think they'd give them a better game. But I just this Alabama team, I can't stop. Every time I watch them play, it's just like, how is how's anyone gonna beat this damn team? It feels like half of them are Heisman candidates. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> you know, it, it, I'm just I I don't know about you guys, but y- y- 2020 was such a shit year. It's such, I mean, just so much awfulness, right? And yeah. and to start 2021, the first day of 2021, with the four bowl games we have, Cincinnati plays Georgia, Northwestern Auburn, and then these two games. It's going to be the best day of college football of the year by far. And it's, we get to kick off a, a, a recovery year, basically. <laughs> I'm excited. Well, uh, speaking of transitioning, there are other bowl games going on. Are there? Uh, yeah, I guess so. But, you know, what we're seeing more and more of now is they've got to come up with some sort of solution, I think, either expanding the playoff or something, because these players, you know, once they're not in the playoff, they're just opting out, which you have to respect their decision. Like, what's the purpose? Unless you have, you're trying to up your draft stock or or something else, what is the point of playing playing one of these games? Well, I think the NFL is the is the entity that provides the value in playing the game, right? I mean, you're going to look at a guy, Jamar Chase from LSU, who's going to be like the, a top five pick who opted out of the season for no damn reason, and the NFL is going to reward him. And it's like the more they reward it, the more that kids are going to be like, wait a minute, I had a great year. I'll just hang out until you guys are ready for me. Like, why am yeah. I going to play anymore? Yeah. And you're going to see it with Florida. Florida's going to get steamrolled by Oklahoma because they don't have Kyle Pitts. They don't have Trayvon Grimes. They don't have Kadarius Toney. Those are the only three guys who've had any production on offense. Poor Kyle Trask is going to be, I mean, miserable. And Oklahoma's going to look like they got a huge win because all these kids said, you know what, I'm going to prepare for the NFL. Even, I know, like in Trayvon Grimes' case, I mean, he's not probably not going to be a high draft pick. He probably yeah. could have used the game to display his skills, especially how he's been playing. He's been coming along strong the second half of the year. I mean, not to... I- you know, call it a mistake, but he—he's a kid that you would have wanted to see play. But now he's going to opt out, and the NFL won't care. And I feel like it would have helped him to come back for another year. I don't know if he has any eligibility. I think he has eligibility. Oh, he, well, not only he does have a year of eligibility 
never mind the fact that because of COVID, everyone has a year, but he had one anyways. And I, th I think with the way he was catching stride and the way he was developing, I think one more year would have really put him in a great position for the NFL. And, you know, hope, you know, the kid will probably still make it. And I, I'm hopeful that he does, but it just, uh, just a weird, weird year and weird time for college football. These kids will just opt out and leave. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here. You know, I mean, this is why I'm such a big fan of expanding the playoff format, because if you, you know, you can shorten that regular season a couple games, add a couple more games of playoff. There's so much more incentive for people to play a much larger stage for people to showcase. And then it gives these teams like Cincinnati a chance to actually show how good they are. And maybe they're matched up against Alabama in the first round and that's their luck. But at least they'll have an opportunity to to really be in the show. Yeah. Even Go, Go ahead. Go ahead. I said, even if you shorten the season a little bit to 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 account for a playoff, right? A playoff is going to be two to three games. Just cut out some of those those early season irrelevant the fillers. Games. Yeah, just yeah. play your conference yeah. folks, and the top two in every conference are in the playoffs. You're just going to cripple small college football That's and, true. and the group yeah. of five teams. You just can't do it. I don't. I don't see the. Yeah. the I don't. I don't see a problem in eliminating one conference game. I guess maybe that'll muddy the waters because you're not playing as many good games. But you're going to cripple Bowling Green, Toledo, all these schools that, yeah. that really fund their yeah, true. department off those games. Yeah, so it's, it's a tough decision, right? Do you do you make the kids play one more game and play 15 instead of 14, or 16 instead of 15, or do you, you know, what do you do? I mean, there's definitely a way to do it. But I guess that part of it too is, you know, it's only it's only 100 people that are playing 15 games. You know, yeah. it's only two teams that get there. Yeah. Absolutely. Everyone else plays 14 or less. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've got to figure out something because this current system has made it so all the other bowl games are irrelevant. Now, I do realize that they probably generate revenue for the cities and, and things like that. But I know personally, like, I went to the Orange Bowl when we weren't competing for the national championship, and there's no energy there. You know, the Rose Bowl is always a great experience. I, I really enjoyed that experience. But it's like you're going there and it's like you almost feel like you're at a, a preseason or exhibition game, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think it, it also depends on the mentality of the team and the program. I I, I don't know. And Ohio State has had some opt-outs. They have Denzel Ward opted out, Bradley Roby opted out, and, yeah. and, and there have been opt-outs for bowl games. But I just think the 2015 Notre Dame Fiesta Bowl didn't make the playoffs, go to play Notre Dame. And, I mean, you're talking about – you know, several players in the top in the first round played. Darren Lee played. Ezekiel Elliott played. Joey Bosa kind of played. Yeah, uh, it, it just it's 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 a culture deal. I mean, it's if the culture's right, those kids will want to play. I mean, what's yeah. what's one game? So you look at Jalen Smith. Jalen Smith was a, a lottery pick that played against us in the bowl game, blew out his ACL, ended up dropping to the second round. And look at him now; he's in the NFL, absolutely thriving and dominating for the Cowboys. So, yeah, injuries could happen. The freak accident could happen. But is it really going to be a long-term uh, impact on your career? Maybe if it's God's plan, but if not, then you'll bounce back. You'll be fine. And you're not going to ever get that opportunity back, right? You're not going okay. to, to get the opportunity to play your last game at Ohio State with your brothers because the thing that I think a lot of these guys don't realize is that everything changes when you get to that next level. The brotherhood isn't the same. You're competing with other people for a job. And that experience that you have at a big-time college program, you'll never have again. You'll never feel the same energy. Um, right. And, and these, these 
these players come back from the NFL and they echo that. You know, they tell players that, and and, and it's impossible to understand and believe until you're there. You just see the you just see the paycheck, you see the dollar signs, and you just imagine you know buying a new car, getting a sweet crib, all this stuff that you just can't get past it as a player when when you know first round draft picks starters in the NFL come back like man I would love to play another game in college like it's just so much better and so so different but players just don't understand it cuz it's not it's like when they when people tell you about having a kid it's like you don't know what that really is until you have a kid it's yeah. like people told me oh my god your life will change the best thing ever and you're like yeah I know I believe that like probably <laughs> is. you have a kid and you're like holy shit this is way better than I thought it would be yeah yeah, I mean, it's 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 amazing. What do you think about the the, the free eligibility? Um, because I'm hearing rumblings about a couple of Ohio State guys coming back for for the free year of eligibility. The most the most I guess high profile ones, Derek King, coming back to Miami to improve his draft stock as well. What do you think about this kind of free year of of eligibility? I mean, it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. I mean, it, it was it was designed to be some like COVID alternative. Like if you opt out, you get another year. And now it's just turned into like, oh, if you had a shitty year, you can come back. Or if you didn't play well, you can come back. And it's like, what? Why? Like, I mean, I'm I'm all for it. Let them come back. Like, why not? It just creates a complete log jam if a bunch of kids do it. But I mean, it's it's dumb. But the whole year was dumb. Everything everyone did was dumb. All the rules were dumb. Everything was dumb. So why not add it to the list? I guess. So. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough, man. Well, we got we can't we can't we can't not talk about our our boy uh, Dwayne Haskins and the surprising move <laughs> that happened with the Washington football team. Uh, Zach, I mean, here's the thing: is I feel like you know Dwayne. I've interacted with him a few times and, and know him as well. This isn't a bad kid, you no. know. He's just kind of been spoiled and coddled and fed into that. Like he's never had the accountability and he does have a little bit of cockiness and arrogance when it comes to, to playing football, you know, now with that said, you know, it seemed like this situation, when I look at it personally, I feel like the best thing was done for everyone involved. Ron Rivera didn't want to develop and sit around and help Dwayne Haskins develop as a man and be a leader the Washington football team is not a good situation for Dwayne Haskins to develop at all being at home, you know, all the distractions that come with that. And now he has an opportunity instead of being held captive for three more years in Washington to go to another team and potentially land behind a veteran and go through the development that he needed. I always thought he should have come back for another year of college personally, but what are your kind of thoughts on this and just the the leaked information and kind of the ugly aspect of 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 this transaction? I mean, I think Dwayne caused all of this first and foremost. He didn't play well. He played probably worse than any quarterback in the NFL this year. And that's not to say his talent isn't there. And there's so many excuses that people want to blame. The O-line stinks. They were 19th in the NFL. There's 32 teams. They weren't horrible. They just weren't yeah. good. He didn't have any skill. Terry McLaurin's really good. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. You can make all the excuses in the world. Dwayne played like shit. That's what he yeah. did. And that's why he got fired, right? The, yeah. All the other stuff is going to be piled on to why he got released and not traded. And 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 that that's where the onus lies initially, right? It's on Dwayne. 
going to a strip club without a mask in, which I hate to break it to everyone. I could name 30 players right now and ruin your fanhood for all of them. If that's a crime worth firing a guy, because (laughs) that is not an uncommon practice in the world of football. No, (laughs) Um, But I think that's where it starts. And then, and then you go to the other side. I mean, Washington is a shitbag organization. Just what they've done, what they did to Dwayne and how they've done everything is just, it's comical. But I think it is kind of coincidental that Ron Rivera gets released from the uh, Carolina Panthers job after Dwayne Haskins beats him last year, gets the Washington job, releases Dwayne Haskins after they lose to Carolina. It's just like, <laughs> this is the most wild storybook ever. And I think, uh, a lot of the onus falls on Dwayne, but it's also on Ron Rivera. It's also on the team. They never gave the kid a chance. Yeah. I mean, they, the the previous coaching staff was pretty vocal in saying they didn't want to draft him, that the ownership did. So then they get fired. They bring in another coaching staff who made it pretty vocal that he was not their guy. I mean, what do you mean? The kid played really well against the Ravens, got benched, and not only got benched, got moved to third string. Yeah. So I know this much. Dwayne is overly confident some would say cocky has an ego he was like you said at home with with you know people he grew up with that was probably all a bad combination but he's not a cancer he's not a bad person like he's not a bad kid so he's gonna have another chance and the best thing that ever happened to him like you said this is this best world both worlds for both of them he's gonna go to a great organization now and have a real chance yeah and and speaking that what organizations do you think um would want to pick pick him up I mean, I think there's three off the top of my head that are great fits. One is uh, the Pittsburgh's a great a great landing spot for him. You got an older quarterback that can I don't want to say mentor him, but the guys the guy's been through some shit too. Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, yeah. he, he's had his own fair share of off the field issues. Yeah. So he, he could probably mentor him a little bit. Pittsburgh's a great organization. Mike Tomlin's one of the best coaches in the NFL, especially when it comes to culture and accountability. And so I think that's great. And then uh, Indianapolis is another one I'd be interested in. Getting back with Paris Campbell, you know, you have Phillip Rivers, an older older quarterback that can mentor him. I think that would be great. And uh, then the third one I see is Tampa Bay. Tom Brady, yeah. Bruce Arians, like just great, great mentorship and and solid people leading the organization that can that can help Dwayne kind of kick the funk and, and become who he's supposed to become. Yeah, and those systems in Pittsburgh and Tampa suit his strengths, right? The downfield passing. They both are downfield passing, passing teams. So now, if if history is gonna uh, teach us anything, it'll probably be the Saints. Just because they love the, (laughs) so it'll probably be the Saints. And I think that's another good opportunity. Although they have Jameis, but I I think there's an opportunity there too. And they, it's Ohio State NFL team, so it might happen. Yeah, two to you know, two years behind a a veteran QB is probably going to do him well. For sure. Yeah. Awesome, guys. Well, we're getting to the end of our college football sprint. This is the last one of 2020. What an exciting year it has been. (laughs) Zach, we wish you a happy new year. Thanks so much for joining us. And we're excited to dig into an Ohio State win, hopefully. Absolutely. Well, happy new year. Let's ring it in the right way. Definitely. Definitely, guys. Well, let's, let's, let's get this W. Show the Pilot Boy some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. Hey guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a Pilot Boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high-performance lifestyle brand that makes the Lasso Sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. 
Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture wicking materials and built-in strike padding. So every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. Last episode of the year, V. I know. It's been a, quite a journey, man. You've, uh, what have you been, what is it, three months now? You started episode 51. This is episode, what, 61 or 62? Yeah. So we're, we, we made it, man. That's, I guess, one quarter in the books. Yes, it is. It is, man. How are you? How are you feeling? How, if you feel like you've hit your stride with the, with the podcast and the conversations, bro. You know the crazy thing. I, this podcast has become a place that I come to every week to just like share what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking, right? And in today's society, I find it more difficult to find forums where I can be very honest and open and. You know, I'm a person who likes to be told why I have a limited perspective in some situations or why my views may be incorrect or what am I missing in my perspective that can help me get better. And I don't like when we disagree and somebody, you know, will get upset at me or call me a bad person for disagreeing with them. Right. Because, you know, that's that's not how the world works. So I think like this podcast is just it's been nice kind of feeling a community build with that same shared value set. Yeah. And I think it's also very important. Um, why I value it is and, and kind of the motivation and we talk about this offline a lot is to I think we got we got you V. I can hear you. Yeah, I can hear you too. Um I'm I am back. All right. Yeah, we lost each other for a second. I don't know what happened. Um, but I think, you know, also with this podcast is it's it's basically the way that I feel about it is that I, I'm very disappointed. Like when I go on media platforms and, and try to read stuff on social media, I just feel like this year has brought out a lot of negativity in, in people, understandably so. It's a, yeah. been a very, very challenging year. There's been a lot of depression. There's been a lot going on just with the virus itself, people losing family members, people dealing with real trauma, losing their jobs, just a lot that people are dealing with. And I think what I see is as opposed to like providing a platform for people to go and kind of get some respite from that, I feel like what we see out there is, is gas being poured on that fire. It's almost like, how upset can we get people? How enraged can get we get people? How divisive can we make people? You know, and I think this platform provides a, a platform where you can have disagreement, um, but do so without getting emotional about it. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree, man. And I think that, you know, in life in general, right, there's so many things that everybody is dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And just being able to find a, a space, a group of people that 
are willing to have honest conversation and have it with the goal of getting better, of broadening your perspective, learning something you didn't know, not with the goal of trying to convince somebody you're right. Yeah. Yeah. That takes just a tremendous amount of personal security and confidence. Yeah. It's valuable. And I think it's, it's, you know, one of the things about, about wisdom and knowledge is that I think the people who gain the most knowledge and become the most wise are the people who understand that their perspective is limited, right? And yeah. seeking knowledge is seeking other people's perspective, embracing other schools of thought, embracing, you know, ideas that are different than yours. So long as, you know, and and, and sometimes I, I will disagree with people, you know, there are some views that just aren't acceptable, right? Yeah. Like ra- racism is a big one that we're dealing with right now in America and the challenges that go with that. And, and also, you know, there, there are other things that just, I think, you know, both of us draw lines in the sand on, Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think both of us can have dialogue around those kind of hot button issues um, and give, give context and give perspective um, that doesn't just rile people up and get people kind of in their corners. Absolutely, man. I, I think, you know, there's there's a strong point to be made about just the way that you choose to interact with people on a daily basis and just the approach to, you know, living life. There's like, I don't want to use the word humble because I feel like people take take that too seriously in society these days. Yeah. But I my definition of humility is is when you fully let go of control of yeah. the world or of your life because you realize that so much is out of your control that you can't possibly have any real significant effect on your path. There's 9 million other factors that are going to, you know, affect whether you succeed or not. But what you can do is you can affect, you can control how you react to challenges and to adversity and what you look at a road in front of you as. And when you spend your time consumed on how other people perceive you or whether you're successful or not, or whether other people think you're successful or not, you're wasting so much energy that could you could be using to actually focus and grow and get better. And I, it's, you know, I feel like that's something that I've seen this year more than I've seen most years. And part of it is, you know, my own growth and dealing with different types of people, having a bigger team that I manage, you know, seeing different personalities. And the other part of it is, is, you know, in personal life, seeing so many people go through everything that, you know, COVID being stuck at home, all the mental effects of that. It's it's very draining. It's very exhausting. It's been financially difficult for so many people. And, um, you know, I I think it's definitely just really challenging to, to live life in these days and living when you have, you know, things happening that work to your disadvantage but finding some optimism. I'm a very positive person. I believe heavily in optimism. And the reason I believe that is because it's a very functional belief. I, it's not like I think you should be positive because you know it's a better way to live, but it's the smarter way to live because when you react positively, you immediately start solving your problems. You don't waste any energy. Yeah. And I think that that is something that you know I'm lucky that I kind of grew up being taught that by my dad. Uh, and by my mom, but I don't think a lot of people did. And that's something that was really, really evident for me this year is seeing how many people struggle to deal with significant amounts of adversity. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important to understand that there's a there are so many factors that make us who we are that are beyond our control. You and I kind of have the privilege to be able to be as optimistic as we are because we've been blessed, you know, Um, and to not have to face some of the adversity that other people have faced and, and what that does to someone mentally. Right. It's, it's, you know, everyone kind of goes through those, those challenges. I mean, I try my best. I think I'm mostly an optimistic person, but I've definitely gone through phases of, of life where I'm pessimistic. Right. Because it's like, you are going to have challenges in life. You are going to face adversity. Things is things are not going to go right. And it's a huge process to be able to not only embrace the things that go well, but to look and find the positive in things that go wrong. Yeah. Right. Because there's a lesson to be learned from everything that goes goes wrong in your life. Yeah. Now that's difficult to balance with just emotional makeup and how our minds work at times. And also, like you said, mental illness and depression, those are real things that prevent a lot of people from actually being the best version of themselves, even if they want to, you know? Um, And I think the best thing that we can do is kind of look at people and understand and look at their experiences and get to know them and not just get pissed off if someone doesn't, necessarily have the same worldview as you or someone's dealing with depression or may have a more negative mindset. It's just like, okay, that person is built by their experiences and I have to embrace and adjust to how I deal with them and be considerate of their trauma and their issues in terms of why they are the way that they are. And if you're able to do that and adjust to people that way, you'll have a lot less stress in your interpersonal relationships, I believe. Yeah, you know, that's that's a really good point. I think part of that adjustment is also setting your expectations at a reasonable spot, right? Yeah. Because you can't expect everybody to handle things the same, same way as you because they're going to have different strengths and weaknesses than you. So yeah. you have to also appreciate when somebody disagrees with you that they could be right as much yeah. as you think you're right, which I think I, I rarely meet people who I'll have a conversation with who will, you know, leave it up in the air as to who's correct and genuinely explore. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, you know, both of us interact with a lot of people who we'd consider exceptionally intelligent. Yeah. And one of the issues that I have with exceptionally intelligent people is that they do always have to be right. Yeah. You know, when they approach a conversation, they approach it in this from a standpoint of, I'm, I've got to prove my theory on this is right because I'm smart and it's developed through their experiences. Right. But one of the things that frustrates me with some highly intelligent people is the inability to embrace schools of thought outside of their own. It's like the conversation itself is frustrating because it's like, you're not listening. You're only speaking to get your point across. Um, And, and that's one of the the frustrating things and like what you said about humility is to actually embrace and understand that you don't know everything. And that although you may have a good reason for your perspective, it doesn't mean that someone else you can't learn from someone else or, or gather knowledge from someone else's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the, I mean, that's the point, right. It's like when people, 
when you approach life in that curious learning manner, you become one of the most learned people because you're open to receiving that knowledge. Yep. But yep. that's something, you know, something that actually came up with my therapist was uh, being open to receiving, which is a topic that I think, you know, doesn't necessarily get talked about much, but it's like, whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whether it's personal, whether it's knowledge, whether it's growth, this, if you look at everything that happens in your life, like you are being given a gift, yeah. it is genuinely easier to be successful because you always take something away from everything that happens that's positive that helps you but if you you know go victim mentality and go woe is me you're stuck and you're stuck until you accept the gift yeah you know and that's that's actually i think you and i spoke about this too um in one of our conversations and how that transition changed my life right in terms of just being open to receiving versus we're taught culturally and just way capitalism works to imprint our um our force or our our position on the world right yeah. um and sometimes you know and that means checking certain boxes especially you know if you, if you are if you are suddenly being embraced as exceptional by the outside world for some reason right yeah um and you're constantly just checking boxes and no one's ever sitting there and thinking, why am yeah. I doing this? Why does this matter? Right. And I think when you, when you're open to receiving the things, you're no longer forcing things, things are coming to you. And then you have, you have to trust yourself and your judgment that when you do receive things that you're equipped to filter those things and know what is meant for you versus always trying to force force your opinion and your thoughts on the world. I think that that can be very, very taxing and yeah. frustrating too, because no matter how smart you are or how right you might be, this world is going to disagree with you. It's going to challenge you, you know, yeah. and it's going to tell you you're wrong, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. I think that's, you know, it's, it, advice that I think I could listen to myself more on, right? Which is genuinely like, I have a lot of conversations where I'll disagree with people. And I'll notice in the conversation that while I am asking questions, I feel strongly that they're wrong. Yeah. Why do I feel that way? You know, why can't I just listen and try to understand where they're coming from? And that brain power where I'm resisting the growth. Did you hear that? Did you hear a crazy noise behind me? No, I didn't just freaked me out new house i think there's some spirits here so that brain power that i'm using to you know essentially just resist i could be using to understand and that for me is like yeah i i don't know if anyone can do this perfectly by any means but well, yeah if you try life gets a little easier every day and you're talking about this changing your life i feel the same way like my life got drastically different once i started listening to the universe and just allowing things to happen as opposed to trying to force it to happen in the way that i wanted it to happen yeah i mean that's that's the truth the universe you know and the universe you know in in the alchemist they say if you really want something you the whole universe conspires to make it so if you're yeah. authentic in your your vision or your belief or your passion 
you have to trust that that authenticity is going to get you where you need to go and that you don't need to force things. Be your yeah. authentic self, you know, and that's that's critical. And as far as what you're saying about needing to be right, I do think that it is valuable to have conviction in your opinion, so long as you take a very objective methodical approach to developing your conviction opinion. with openness yes yeah so there's there's i don't think that it's so wrong to to always say you know what i think it's important to take stands on certain things or certain positions and convictions that you have in life and morals um that you're not going to stray from that's part of what makes you you an individual you know yeah. and i think that that's that's the other thing is it's 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 okay to have opinions it's okay but just don't have opinions that are driven by a lack of knowledge or a lack of seeking it like take a very methodical and scientific approach to gaining knowledge one of the things that i always say in scientific experiments what do they try to do first they try to disprove your hypothesis not try to prove that it's right Right. right. And and if you look at it from that standpoint and you approach life that way, definitely things things change. It's hard it's definitely a hard thing to do because our minds just are triggered the way that they are. Yeah. And you know, the other part of it is the there are some intuitions. I would say intuition in general is something that is neither to be proven nor disproven, but just listened to in mm -hmm. essence. There are some feelings that come up in life that guide you in the direction you should go. Yeah. And yes, it's important to question your thoughts, but there is a level of intuition that that is kind of deeper than rational thinking that just tells you where to go. And I think that sometimes when you really have a strong feeling that you should be doing something, it makes sense to be doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think in the context, kind of bringing it full circle, like I think this year, I think a lot of people have been asking the question, like, why the hell is this happening? Yeah. You know, um, versus saying it is happening and what am I going to do? Right. Like, yeah. how am I going to, how am I going to take advantage? Like I hated being indoors. Yeah. What have I done more? I've read more. I've interacted, interacted with people. I've had conversations more. I've, you know, I've had, I've figured out a way to adjust to the new normal versus every day. If you're waking up every day and saying, damn, why the fuck is this happening? You're not, you're good. That mindset is going to, is going to take hold. And I feel like also this is a year, like, how do you respond to adversity? Yeah. No. And this year, I think, is showcasing people who are successful or people who are responding to this adversity with a positive outlook. You know, there are yeah. people who are losing their jobs who I think are finding new ways and understanding that, hey, certain things that I think were promised and always promised to me, they're not promised. Yeah. So how do I adjust? You see a, a great increase in entrepreneurship, which you and I are big advocates of, you know, and figuring out a way to survive. I think there's something beautiful in surviving through adversity that we've done this year. 
You know, yeah. obviously there have been a lot of deaths. Some of these could have been avoided if if the people in power would have taken taken better steps, but they took the steps that they did, you know, and we have to adjust to that new normal. I think people have adjusted in the sense that in the sense that people are looking at this virus and 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 saying we have to live with this thing. Right. How, how do we live with this thing? Right. Yeah, I mean I dude, I totally agree. Um, you know, one of the things that that happened this year for me, um, I was I was driving in like east from LA and I had to go get gas and I just, you know, had kind of this weird feeling like, you know, don't stop, but I was like, I need gas, gotta stop. Yep. Stop, started filling up the gas. There's this homeless guy kind of digging through the trash. And I'm like, okay, let me just fill this up, get out of here. In like the matter of 30 seconds, this is like a weird, weird, just weird feeling. Everybody else at the gas station had left. There were like four cars there. Now there's only me, this homeless guy. And he, um, I look in his hand and there's a pistol in his hand. And right then some cop cars pull up. And he's eyeing me and getting ready to make a move my way. But when the cop cars pull up, they pull pull guns on him because someone had called and reported him. I threw my body down on the other side of my car and I'm just hiding. And, yeah. you know, I hear these guys ask him to drop the gun for like two minutes. Like it, it was it was so long and um, he did not And he raised the gun at them and just got shot up. Right, you were right in front there. of me, like oh, 10 wow. feet. Wow. In June, this is the height of Black Lives Matter. But I'm sitting here with an experience that goes counter what everybody is saying. And, you know, I agree with the plight of African Americans in our country. I have so many friends that are scared to even deal with the cops, talk to them, be around them. But at the same time, these cops basically probably saved my life when I'm in the middle of nowhere pumping gas, you know, sun was still up. It was just setting. It wasn't dark yet. And it was just a crazy freak incident with somebody with some mental issues, just all of that. But, you know, the experience set me back for a few weeks because I really had to rethink a lot. But what it, what it showed me is that up until that point, I had been very, what I would call, probably self-centered with my view of life like it was a very egocentric view and so i fundamentally had always felt that i was here for you know a large and important purpose mm -hmm. and what i realized after the fact was that the scope of my purpose was only is only large by human standards financially you know market size, you know, all of that brand wise, that impact is large on a human context. But in the context of nature and evolution, I'm just another, you know, animal amongst the sea of animals, all part of this society that we've decided to construct because we have sentient, you know, intelligence. But how did if we were not to, then nothing that I provide to society would really matter, right? Yeah. And it was like a very, very important wake up call for me. And I was able to take something positive. A lot of people struggle with PTSD from these things for a long time. And I did. 
it took a long time for me to be able to pump gas at night. But I went and you know went out of my way to fight through the fear because I also recognized that those fears were attached to you know the animal version of me, the flight or flight, fight or flight response, right? But I also understood from that experience, just in a very profound way, that <laughs> it was so much more about me having a moment to recognize that I'm no more important than anybody else who lives on this planet. And that was a true, what, that's why I don't like the word humility. That's humility for me. Is that like pure, just like, okay, you ain't shit. Like you're just like everyone else. And at that point, things just took off for our business. Yeah. It's like, why, why is that? You know, I mean, there were still things we had to work through. Like a lot of stuff had to get figured out, but it took off in the sense that I had extreme clarity and it's because I had something else that put what I do at work in into you know more reasonable perspective for me. It just showed yeah. me that the things that I would get upset about or the things that I would feel emotionally about were not important enough to feel that way. Yeah, I mean, it's a very tough thing for any of us to reconcile how unimportant we are in the grand scheme of this earth we're one in seven billion people there are people in this world who don't know who beyonce is there are people in this world who don't know who barack obama is there are people in this world who don't know even these like cultural phenomenons yeah they're not see and and 50 years from now you know and i think about this you know when i talk about michael jordan versus lebron james there are just a lot of younger kids who never will see never got to see or experience michael jordan play and so it was a tough thing for me to to reconcile the fact that hey these guys he's not that significant you yeah. know to them yeah and to their experience you know and when you realize that and you realize how insignificant you are you're able to free yourself to just be yourself right yeah. like, a lot of the things that we say matters like with our parents, with our, with our families, with our relationships, like you can't control a lot of what happens in your life. And at the end of the day, all you can do is live with the intention and purpose that you want to live with. Yeah. And you are insignificant, make the most, you don't know what's going to happen after this. You are here for a reason, you know, what that reason is. We don't, none of us really know, but to kind of get caught up in, I'm, I'm so much more important than someone else or what I'm doing is more significant than the, the janitor at the school. It may, and from your perspective, it is, but to the kids at that school, that janitor makes sure that the school's running great and they're able yeah. to have a safe work environment, a safe school environment for the teachers, for the kids. And if they do that for 30 years, how are they any less significant than the CEO of a major company who's a, a billionaire? They're not. Yeah. yeah. 100% man and i think that that's it i mean that that's the reality of life is that the things that we were all taught are important or they're not you know the yeah. only thing that's really that matters is are you being true to yourself yeah. and you know on the note of how we share in this experience i i have a belief and i think we're probably similar on this um that you choose your own suffering in life yeah. and so do you choose to suffer through you know physical fitness do you take a cold shower every day do you you know 
feel stress at work or do you feel stress at your home life and there is in my in my belief a certain threshold of you know pain that we have to experience every day for our bodies to you know set everything else in context because our brain essentially is processing right so if you have you know a one level of pain and you know you have a 10 level of happiness and that's like the ratio it's going for if you only have a you know if you have like events that make you very happy then you know that that pain level is going to go up accordingly and vice versa and my belief is that if you push up the pain level through discomfort you know going after actions that that make you very uncomfortable the rest of life becomes a breeze and i've always looked at that as as fitness working out stretching you know mental growth journaling if i could find some way to push myself every single day into discomfort whether it's you know being on top of myself and having discipline about doing my chores at home whatever that might be everything else gets easier and that that's what i found personally but it's you know these are not intuitive understandings of the world based on how we're brought up no it's not and it's also self-actualization is not something that's really encouraged by the world that we live in we're crane to kind of fit into certain boxes, you know, by the decisions that we make. It's like, okay, yeah. well, and nobody questions why they make the decisions, you know, the, whether you finish high school and, and you get a job right out of high school, you go to college and you pursue higher education. It's like, we're all kind of like cogs in a machine and we never really question what is it that I really want to do. Yeah. And I think that the sooner, you know, and I think your generation um, asks these questions a lot sooner, um, probably younger generation than yours. The, yeah. The Gen know, Zs. The Gen Zs. Yeah. They're much more, they, they think much more about what is it that I want out of life versus what does society expect of me? You know, do yeah. I have to by 25 graduate college and, get married and 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 have a stable job and buy a house that i can't afford like they don't have <laughs> that same structure those same structural norms and societal pressure that i think has hindered a lot of people because i feel like a lot of people are living unhappy lives because they decided that society was going to dictate what was right for them yeah you know? yeah and i have i have a lot of friends who are you know, are unhappy because they never really thought through the decisions that they make. Like, I honestly think, you know, certain things are not for everyone, you know, yeah. and, and you have to know what's right for you and what's wrong for you um, in this life. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more, man. I mean, that's ultimately the decision that every single person needs to make for themselves is what do you value? And, are you going to live by those values or are you going to live by society's values? Yep. And that can be the difference between being happy and not. Yeah. And the truth is it's not easy. It's not easy. Like if you're, yeah. if you don't fit into the box or the mold, you're going to deal with a lot of adversity. People are going to talk shit about you. People are going to be like, you're a weirdo. But once you build that confidence in yourself, it doesn't really even matter what anyone says because it's like, yeah, that's you. And what you think about me, that doesn't determine yeah. what's right for me is right for me. You know, that's, that's a really good point, too, is that 
You know, other people's opinions don't matter. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. They just don't. Your opinion matters. If you're happy, you're happy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and happiness is something that, you know, anybody who thinks that you can be happy 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that's that's not humanly possible. But what yeah. you can do is understand that how quickly you come out of those negative points in your life. Like how quickly can you snap out of it? How quickly can you kind of adjust or some of the things that you were saying? Yeah. Are there things that you can do um, to, to kind of make that adjustment so that you don't linger? I think that's yeah. the most important thing is to not let negative energy linger because once it lingers, it becomes habitual. And once it becomes habitual, um, it's, it's very hard to come out of. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you, you said, I mean, a lot, a lot of wisdom there. I think that there's just in general, for, for the regular layperson, I mean, there's a lot of things in today's society that we use to, you know, as excuses. Like we talked about, uh, you mentioned mental health earlier. Huge believer in taking care of your mental health. But the amount of people that I meet who, you know, and I, I'm not calling out any close friends here, by the way. Yeah. Don't take this personally. But the amount of people that I meet that will tell me that they have depression or they have some sort of mental condition. And just use that as a reason for them to feel bad or as a crutch or as an excuse. It, it's growing every single day. And I think, you know, if you have, you, you're allowed to be sad, first of all. Being sad doesn't mean you're depressed. So yeah. There's a big difference there. So being depressed, again, then it's a totally different thing. And then you have to have the conversation about whether you're depressed enough to need medication. You need to understand where that comes from. And in the US, a lot of the time, the cause is your diet. If you yep. don't have a healthy diet, you're going to have effects mentally as a result. Yep. So what is partially frustrating to me is how, and it's, it's frustrating only because I want to help these people kind of, you know, take ownership of their lives and, and have more confidence and success. But I really feel it's a personal decision that you have to make to start being accountable to yourself. And it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not about where society, it's not about like, do I have this condition or do I not? It's not, it, it, it has nothing to do with any excuse you can make, but it is so simply, this is what I wanted to do. And I did not do that. And I failed and that's okay. I will now readjust my goals and get better. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot there that to unpack with what you said, because I think one of the things is mental illness and being depressed has kind of this taboo sentiment around it in which people, like you said, there's the excuse making part of it. And then there's the, uh, the other side of it, which is the unwillingness to acknowledge yeah. that yeah. Hey, there's something wrong here and, and, and almost being stubborn in the sense of not acknowledging that, Hey, I have some mental issues that I might need to deal with because it's so taboo to just even embrace that and accept it. And you know this in our culture, you don't go and see a therapist. You don't, it's like you just deal with stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of trauma that comes from our parents have from moving from another country um, with a completely different culture and adjusting to America that most of them just never even address. They just keep moving. Yeah. You know, and keep 
and never deal with it. And it manifests itself in very challenging ways within families, within um, a lot of different uh, different settings. And I think that's the other side of this is one acknowledging yeah, and having the conviction to be able to actually say, hey, there's something wrong with me. It's okay for there to be something wrong with you. But then also not using that, to your point, not using that as an excuse to say, oh, I'm just depressed. Oh, my life just sucks. I'm not going to be able to do this because woe is me. It's like, okay, tackle it, deal with it. And if you're tackling and dealing with it, I think that people are going to be willing to help you. And also, you, you know, trying to help yourself is the best thing that you possibly can do because there's truth is there are some people who don't. Suicide is a very real thing. There are some people who cannot, no matter what therapy, what drugs, they cannot overcome their depression, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we can't, we can't just ignore that aspect of it. But at the same time, it's like, are we creating a society and a culture that's conducive to people helping themselves and to us helping them versus just looking at depression and looking at mental illness as something that's like innately wrong or a weakness in a human being? Yeah, man. I, I think that's, that's a, you know, again, a lot, a lot to unpack with that comment as well. Cause it's, it's just runs so deep, but I think that the point that you should take care of your mental health is, you know, it's a fundamental, uh, because you have the physical, the mental and the spirit, and you, you have a responsibility to take care of all three for yourself as it, it you know, sentient animal alive otherwise well i mean i guess it's not really a responsibility but it's like either you do that and you're happy or you don't do that and you feel bad all the time so you probably want to do that but you know it it is interesting how you you know talked about a lot of the things that like we go through as immigrants right yeah or, we're not immigrants but our parents immigrated but yeah. the perspectives in early childhood affect you so much and without going to therapy i would not have understood the values that i picked up from my parents that you know th these are discussions we have it's like hey you know i i feel like guilt when i spend money on myself yeah okay why do i feel that guilt well because my earliest memories with my parents money was extremely tight you know and i'm the older sibling so my experience is different than my sister's, even though it's, it's just by a few years because my parents worked hard and their situation improved pretty significantly over my lifetime. And so when I when I think about, you know, what I got out of the experience of actually diving in and, and doing the work, it was an understanding that the next time I feel guilt, I can take a breath, acknowledge where it's coming from and then buy myself something nice because I want to, you know. Yeah. Not because I'm not not buy it because I'm compensating and I'm trying to have an ego. And also on the flip side, I don't not buy it because I feel bad for spending money that, you know, I might have. Yeah. I mean, I'm reading this book right now um, called The Psychology of Money. Hmm. Um, and it's very interesting because I think what we do in our society is oftentimes we judge other people for what they do or their psychology when it comes to money without ever taking into consideration the why of why people do the things that they do when it comes to money because it's not our place to tell someone what to do 
Um, it's based on their experiences. Like you yeah. just highlighted how your experience with your family and how our experiences as, as, as immigrants with money kind of still impact us to this day. We're not as conservative as our parents, but there is that guilt. Like my parents don't go out to eat often. Yeah. Now. Like, so when I get that bill still to this day and I go out to eat and the bill comes out to be $60, $70, even though I know I can afford it, it's still like, damn, I just spent $70 on a meal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I feel the same way. Cause it's like, even you know, when I was starting the company, I remember it was like anything more than Chipotle was too much money, you know, yeah. and I would I would get Chipotle. That was my one meal a week I would eat out and yeah. everything else was just like, you know, rice. And like if I could get chicken breast in there, that's great. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And so it's it's important for us to not judge other people for. Yeah kind of their life views because it's all determined by their life experiences. Like there's the, one of the things that he said in the book is like the criticism um, that's, that's lobbed against like people who spend a lot of money on lottery tickets, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, okay, well you don't understand that, you know, a lot of the people they're, they're, they're fed that money is everything. And that they don't have it. And here's a route by which your lifestyle could change, you know? Yeah, drastically. Um, and yeah, you have a one in billion, one billion chance, but there's something that's triggered that gives you that momentary hope that you have a shot. And so, you know, and it took me a while to get over that, like, and understand that, hey, there's, even though I'm looking at this thing and saying you have a better chance of hitting, getting struck by lightning than winning the lottery, someone does win the lottery, you know, um, and and it can change your life. You yeah. Um, and so that lottery mentality is something. The lottery ticket is just one way of putting it, but I think there's a lottery mentality just generally in America because in America and throughout the world of like people don't it takes a lot of hard work uh to be successful at everything at anything yeah. uh, but we do have this culture where it's like okay well if i can take a shortcut if i i i buy lottery tickets if i can hit a, a 300 million dollar jackpot right now i think it's at like 400 million dollars <laughs> the things that that could do you know uh it's still powerful right yeah. and it's fun so the, the criticism that people have of like, oh, you know, why are you spending all this money on lottery tickets? You know, you should be saving that money is, is quite frankly, stupid and unfair, yeah. you know? Well, and I think, you know, what's interesting about the whole experience too is you talk about how the, most of the demographic buying the lottery tickets is fed this story about money, right? And that's yeah. kind of what we were talking about earlier with society's values. Like, it benefits society for you to value money more than you value everything else because it means that you'll be a great worker and you'll show up on time and you'll get your work done. You'll work really hard because you think that that's the most important thing you need to do for your family. And money is definitely impactful and you can do a lot with it, but it is by no means the most important thing on this world. It's not even top five in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, obviously you need to have enough to be able to, 
pay your bills, you know, and sustain your lifestyle. But I think getting addicted to the more you get addicted to, to materialism, the more damaging of effect I think it has on your mental, mental health, because eventually it doesn't, nothing really satisfies you. Uh, Yeah. And the more you nickel and dime people, the more you ask for money, the more you're attached to it, the less people want to give it to you. Right. It's like, no, the, the, the kid who's always, you know, asking to borrow something, right. Or the kid who's always asking for something at school growing up from you always, can I borrow a pencil? Can I borrow a pencil? Can I do this? Can I do that? It's just like, you get, you get sick of that, you know, in business too. When people ask me for, you know, like commissions or like things that were like, that are like not exactly necessary because they haven't, you know, really necessarily gotten involved, let's say, right. Like, Again, not calling out anybody here, just talking on a on a concept. But um, when I get pressed from people like, "Hey, I did you a favor. Now compensate me," it's like, "Well, okay, I'll compensate you, but I'll never do a favor for you." And that's a far worse outcome for you than if you just did a good thing for somebody and then waited for the universe to bring that back around. Because I can guarantee you, my good thing I would do for you would, you know, probably be ten x what you did for me. Yeah. But- you just missed that. You took a one X. Yep. Yep. And I think a lot of people get caught up in that tip for tat or favor for favor mentality. And at the end of the day, I have this belief that you give without expectation. What you choose to give, you give because you want to give it, not with the expectation of what's going to come back. And if you have that mindset and you have that belief, the things that are meant to come back to you will come back to you. Yeah. Um, and it's just a very helpful way to look at life. It's challenging with kind of how world, the world tells us to look at things. Always, always garner the value. Always make sure you're being valued, you know, yeah. negotiate the down to the bottom dollar. But, you know, one of the more fascinating things with my life experiences is that I find that the people with the most money are the least happy and the people with who have the least money, but have a good family structure, have and aren't attached to money, are some of the happiest people, especially when I used to go to India and we would see some of the the poorest kids with the biggest smiles on their faces because they didn't actually know. They weren't brainwashed to think of things as, oh, I don't have. They just live life with what they had. Yeah. You know, and I find that even in my experiences in America, like find a lot of well to do, really like money motivated families um, to be missing a major ingredient of happiness, which is money does not alone buy happiness. Yeah. It doesn't. You know, you can have all the money in the world and be miserable, but you can literally have no money and be happy. Yeah. Uh, well, money is essentially, in my mind, it's always been a megaphone, right? Because the the th- the interactions we have, the feelings we have, are, are they're, they're real, they're organic, mm-hmm. and you can use money to accentuate those feelings. If you want to, if you have a great family vibe, you can take everyone on a trip. It's yeah. a good use of money, right? If you have a company that's got organic buzz, you can put money into advertising and accentuate that organic buzz and that storytelling, so more people know about you. But if you try to create that organic thing that you know is very raw very human with money it is impossible yeah yeah 
Yeah, you cannot, you money cannot buy you what you're missing in your life when you yeah. get it. You know, and that's why you see uh, your problems get exacerbated or magnified when you do get money, right? Versus, you know, if you don't deal with that stuff, you know, it can actually be a problem for you in the sense that now you have the money to kind of magnify your vices, to magnify yeah. your issues and to do things that, you know, just you probably shouldn't be okay with doing. Yeah, straight up, man. And, you know, I, I can tell you firsthand going through, you know, so many times of being broke, going into debt, the opposite side of money attachment will limit you as well. If you're scared to be broke, if you're scared to run out of money, if you're scared to go in debt for something that's true to you, that's also an attachment to money that's holding you back in the opposite way. Yeah. I mean, it took me a long time to get over like the, our cultural traits of just saving every single dollar yeah. Yeah. and and always being worried about how am I spending this money? You know, it's a waste of money. I'm wasting money. I'm being wasteful. And I think I adjusted my mindset to say, you know what? The things that I want to do, I'm going to do. And, yeah. But I do have a filter in terms of like, actually evaluating whether something is actually valuable to me or not. Like one thing I, I'm very open to doing is spending money on traveling, you know, because yeah. something that's valuable that I feel like I've, I gained so much that no matter how much money is spent on it, that the value far, you know, exceeds whatever I'm spending. And then also like, and you said this also with your business that, yeah, you have to make large capital investments. You can't always just think about how am I going to get this for free or how am I going to do this for the cheapest possible in the cheapest possible sense. There are certain things that you actually have to figure out a way to get $100,000 to spend on. And once you get into that habit, I think it changes your outlook when you do look at money as transactional and you say, okay, it needs to have a purpose. I can't just sit here and hoard it keep hoarding it with no purpose for it. Yeah. And, you know, this will be probably just a, a quick little story for, um, you know, for our listeners. But I was speaking with um, Mark Zuckerberg's money manager, who is a buddy of mine. And he does, you know, so many amazing celebrities. I'm not going to name drop here, but I did the one. So, you know, the context. and. As I was speaking with him, I, and I was speaking with his business partner too, um, just you know, whenever I meet somebody, I never have a business conversation. I have a values conversation. Yeah. And so you know, I was, I was asking them what they believe, why they believe it, what their goals are, and he started the conversations. And this is a money management group. This is a financial, you know, advisor and investor. Started the conversation with money is fungible, meaning definition of it um able to to replace or be replaced by another identical item so mutually interchangeable essentially saying money will show up when you need it to show up you can always find it it doesn't drive how we think about the world mm -hmm. and for me that was a really important moment because i had had an inkling for a while and i think that's part of it too is like it's hard to confirm that your beliefs are, you know, aligned with the, the, the people you want to do business with until you actually start doing it. 
But it took me a long time to get to a place where I was able to not be attached to money and feel the scarcity side of it, where it's like, hey, if I spend it, will it come back? And over time, I have started to learn, you know, and this is my worldview, that the things that we do as people are really what drive things forward. It's all about creating momentum, creating movement, creating energy amongst people in a community and a tribe. And money shows up and there's a million ways to get it once you create something that you know you can you can put money toward but if you spend your whole life chasing money you're chasing the byproduct money is something that follows you know great builders or great impact makers or great influential folks that you know create a lot of value for one or many people and if you keep that focus on just getting to the end and getting to you know some dollar amount you're missing the whole reason why people actually make money. It's because they're creating so much value for, you know, for people or for society. And beyond that, they're doing it in a way that, you know, detaches them from money itself. They're doing it in a way that's very, very human centric and very focused on the human experience, which means that the money that they're going to make from it is not, it's not, you know, somebody's hard-earned wages that they're putting toward it, right? But it's capital from the markets from, you know, the majority of money is is not controlled by by individuals. It's controlled by banks. It's controlled by, you know, financial investment firms, right? So it's there's just so many different ways to create financial incentives for yourself. But that's like the step two. And I think everybody starts there. Yeah, I think you said it with the byproduct thing is is key but i also think people don't ever ask themselves what is enough right yeah. i think there's this like you know bob marley said you know money is numbers numbers never end you know um so if you're if you're attached to money you're never going to be satisfied you yeah. know it's like once you get to to five million i need 10 million i need yeah hit 100 and you see this with people that you're around it's like once you hit that metric it's about how do i get to the next metric without even thinking about why do i need a hundred million yeah you know why do i need a billion what is enough what do you need like ask yourself what are the things in my life that i want and what are those things that i need money for and so long as you answer those questions and then go about figuring out a way to get there I think that that's valuable. And I think that that's what a lot of people keeps them from being happy is because they never understand what enough is, you know? And, you know, you said, you said something really powerful, which is um, when you're evaluating, you know, what is enough and like how you're going to spend your money to go to those goals. A lot of the goals that you'll outline don't actually require additional money to get there. Like you want a new house, right? Well, there's this whole thing called house hacking. If you're going to live in the house, you can actually make money by living in a new house, by buying a new house, using an FHA loan. You know, there's all this technicalities. But the point being that many of the things we think that we need money for are actually much more affordable than we think they are, or we can make money and do them at the same time but it's just about being creative with thinking about how you're going to create that opportunity for yourself. But to your point, starting with that final goal, building from there backward is a better way to approach things than building toward money and then using that money for the goal. That's, 
you know, that's a zigzag. That's not yeah. the efficient way to get there. No, it's not. Not at all. Yeah. So, you know, we are getting to the end of our time today, V. It has been an exciting 2020, man. Um, do you have any sort of resolution leading into next year? I'm not actually a big resolution guy. What I want to do is continue momentum, right? I think there's a lot of momentum. I think a lot of people kind of say, I'm going to wait until the new year for my resolution. Yeah. That should be starting now. You know, yeah. like, how do I continue what I've been doing in 2020 into 2021? You know, and I think it's yeah. good to take breaks and relax as well. Um, but I think a lot of people, I think the problem that I have with resolutions is that it creates a, a unique pressure, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I get that. You know, and I think I, I, I definitely applaud people who come up with them every year and make them and then execute on them. Um, but I'm not a big, big resolution guy. How about you? Yeah. I have two focuses that are on my mind. Um, one is I would like to be a better listener and, uh, that there's a difference between listening and reacting. So I think that sometimes I react, I think I react probably 50 to 70% of the time. Yeah. And I would like to get that to be a minority, maybe 25% or less. And then, um, I want to ask more questions of people and I want to genuinely get more curious about how other people do things. And to me, if I'm not asking questions from the people I'm around, I'm not challenging myself enough to grow. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's a great, a great perspective and a great resolution to have. And I think that's, that's something that I think just generally we should have from year to year, month to month. Ask day to day. yourself, how do you grow? How do I become a better version of myself? And it, it's not always going to be monumental stuff. It might be the smallest thing that you do, right? You like, know what it was for me last night, bro? I folded my laundry after I did it. That's a huge one. It's, yeah, I didn't leave it in a pile. Oh, okay, okay. I folded half of it. There is one pile. <laughs> it's funny. Like It's, it's so weird. Like For me, uh, I get frustrated with myself sometimes because it's like, cleanliness like it's 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 valuable but what will happen is i'll build up a lot of clutter and then one day i'll just freaking clean it and then three months later it'll be the same and it used to bother me like I, it still bothers me like why can't i just because it's a lot of work to clean up right yeah why can't i just keep it consistently clean and Part of me is just kind of understanding and accepting. That's just is what it is. The more I start, it's, it's been the case for, for this many years, you know, it's not going to change you yeah. know, unless you hire a consistent, you know, cleaning lady um, or, or solve that problem in another means. You just kind of have to try to fix it, but also embrace the fact that the reality is the reality of who you are. You know? Yeah. And part of it too, sometimes is like, I, when I notice myself skipping these, you know, simple things, it's like, well, am I really taking, am I showing myself the kind of love that I show other people? Yeah. You know, oftentimes I don't. Yeah. And that like, it's always a wake up call, you know, just for me, laundry is a big mental block for some reason. It's very challenging. To get I hate to all of those tasks. I'm yeah. Not a big fan of them, but. Dishes are fine. I love cooking. Laundry, very yeah. challenging. But how can I, you know, every time I don't do it, 
or anytime I let it lag, I ask myself, would you take care of somebody you love the same way? Yeah. The answer is no. So it must mean there's a lack of self-love and that's something to work on. That's how I've always felt. Yeah. I mean, it's as simple as, you know, one of the things that's is making your bed when you wake up in the morning. You know, I yeah. don't do that every day. I'm going to be honest. Most days I do, but I don't do it every day, you know? And it's like some days, some days you kind of, I think like you said, is maybe a lack of self-love, but sometimes I think it's okay to be lazy. You know, I yeah. think this, this sense that, oh yeah, you can't be lazy ever, or you can't take like this military mindset. And the truth is that I think it's important some days for you to just be like, I don't feel like doing it. So I'm not going to do it. And understanding that it's not the end of the world. Yeah. If you don't, I think there's a lot of people who are OCD about these little tasks that get caught up mentally blocked. Yeah. Or sweating the small stuff. Like that's the saying, don't sweat the small stuff. It's like, just embrace what it is. And so long as your mindset isn't, I'm going to live a messy lifestyle or I don't care about myself. It's okay to have bad days where you're like, I don't feel like doing the dishes. I don't feel yeah. like doing certain things. And then the next day you do them, you know? Yeah. That's exactly it, man. That's exactly it. Yeah. Well, I think as we've shown on this conversation, there's a spectrum to all these things. There's two ends to everything. And you know, find your spot somewhere in the middle on all these decisions. Just be you, be yourself yeah. and embrace yourself. So that's 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 all we have for our last episode of News and Notes in, in 2020. Um, just want everyone to have a safe and happy new year. Make the best of it. I know a lot of people are adjusting. And always remember, be you. You as fly. Pilot boys out. Pilot boys, we get on Pilot boys, we get on up.